This is Reynolds Podcast, The Creative Mindset. Welcome to The Creative Mindset, a podcast about the art of building a career through conversations with the world's leading practitioners of creativity. It's an intimate journey on how they got started, their turning points, failures, and tips on work on life. I am your host, Ray Inamoto, the founding partner of IANCO, a global innovation firm based in New York and Tokyo. Today's episode is part one of my conversation with Cindy Gallup, the founder and the CEO of Make Love Not Porn, the world's social sex platform. Originally from England, she spent her childhood years in Asia. She went to college at Oxford at the tender age of 16. After she graduated, she got into theater, spending a few years not acting or directing, but actually doing PR for the theater company that she was working for. There, she was encouraged by one of her audience members to go into advertising, and that's how she found her entry. Starting as an intern, eventually she became the founder and the CEO of the US branch of BBH, one of the most respected and most creative advertising agencies in the world. In this episode, she shares her learning from her career, especially working in the 80s and 90s in Europe. In Asia, then in the US, becoming a leader, how she managed her own happiness as well as the members that she was managing at the time. I met Cindy actually on stage back in 2010 in Tokyo, where I was a panelist, and she wasn't quite a fellow panelist, but a moderator of that panel. Ever since I met Cindy at that stage, she has become my role model. And I was always so inspired by what she does and what she says. It was such an honor to talk to her. And at the end of this episode, I will share three key takeaways from my conversation with Cindy. So let's get started. So let's、uh, talk a little bit about your background and wanted to ask you about your career and what you do now. Sure. So, for the benefit of our listeners,、yeah. um, I am half English and half Chinese.、Mm-hmm. My father was English, he's no longer with us. My mother is Malaysian Chinese. And I was born in the UK, but when I was six,、um, we moved to Brunei, where my father had got a job. And so that's where my sisters and I grew up. As some of our listeners may know, Brunei is a very small country,、um, 100 miles long, very small population. You know, when we were living there, 200,000 people. And it's a very orthodox Muslim state. And My parents regularly subsequently apologized to me and my sisters for our childhood because Brunei was very devoid of cultural pursuits and, and creative manifestations. And so I think that that is why I was a- actually absolutely encouraged as a child, particularly by my father, to be creative.、Mm. So I was a voracious reader,、um, which my father really encouraged, gave me very adult things to read. I used to draw a lot、um, as a kid,、oh, so、really? that, that was really encouraged.、Yeah. I, I did a lot of drawing.、Yeah. I wrote,、um, I, I used to write myself. You know, I wrote stories, I wrote poems.、Um, all of these were, were very much encouraged.、Mm. So from there, you say you moved there when you were six. Yeah. And then while you were there through, I guess, high school, and then you moved to, you back to, to the UK to、yeah. go to college? I mean, yeah. So, yeah. So,、um, so I basically went to school in Brunei、yeah. up to the age of 14. 14.、Um, um, I was actually, I was a bit of an infant prodigy, so,、mm. so I was a couple of years ahead of、mm-hmm. my grade, as、yeah. it were. And so I,、um, my parents sent me back to boarding school in the UK to do 
A-levels, mm -hmm. which yeah. are the final yeah. exams before you go to university. Uh, and then I went to Oxford. Right, and, right. and so I went back to the UK to go to school and university. Yeah. So, um, so I, I did get into Oxford. Mm. I won a, a scholarship to Somerville. Then I have to say, Ray, so the moment I turned up at Oxford, I was so grateful my parents had pushed me because it was a privilege to spend three years at that university. You know, amazingly historic institution. You were studying within all of these beautiful old buildings in this gorgeous city, um, in this wonderful educational system of one-on-one -on -one tutorials. And Somerville College was incredible. You know, Somerville was... Um, one of the first colleges um, that allowed women to study at Oxford. You know, it, it, it was founded in 1879. Mm. And by the way, women could study there, but women were not allowed to graduate from Oxford until mm. something like 1918. I mean, utterly ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that pioneering spirit has made Somerville what it is today. Mm. And so I felt, you know, that Somerville saw my potential, wanted to bring it out. It was a wonderful place to study in. Mm. And, um, and also, you know, Oxford was where, again, you know, creativity um, had full reign mm. because I fell in love with theater at Oxford. You know, obviously, you know, it, it's a university with a ton of brilliant student pursuits. Sure. It has a thriving student drama scene. And I really had not been exposed to theatre in that way previously. And I just fell in love with all of that, you know. Right. And, you know, I wrote, acted, directed, staged, managed. Um, I was president of the Somerville Drama Society. Um, and I decided all I wanted to do was work in theatre for the rest of my life. Wow, but okay. I, knew, I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress mm. or a director. But um, as I mentioned, I used to draw a lot. Mm. And so my friends, um, you know, on the theatre scene um, sucked me into designing theatre posters for their shows, which I really enjoyed. I designed a ton of theatre posters. And then from that, it was one small step to them asking me to sell their shows for them. Yeah. So I basically was publicising and marketing, you know, the student productions right, at Oxford. Right, right. And I really enjoyed that. And I thought you know, I bet it's easier to find a job doing this in the professional theatre world than acting or directing. Um, and it totally was. And so that's how I became, you know, post-university, a theatre market marketer and publicist. So you were a designer before you went into yes. uh, yeah, that, I was. that industry. That I was. Is, uh, that's yeah. a piece of history that I never yeah. knew about. Yes. Yeah, I've known yeah. you before. And, uh, and, and, and you yeah. know, Ray, um, sadly, um, they're all in storage because there's no room to hang them here. But yeah. I have a ton of my old theatre posters from Oxford framed. And, you know, if I say so myself, yeah. I think they were rather good design-wise. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So by this point, you're 20, um, not yet? Uh, uh, I was, so I got into Oxford when I was 16. 16, okay. Um, I, um, I took a year off. Okay. Um, you know, I went up when I was 17. Okay. Um, and so when I left, I was 20. 20, and, yeah. And, and then actually I did... Um, a year's MA at the mm. University of Warwick in um, Theatre of the European Renaissance. Okay. And after that, I began working in theatre. So I was, I was 21 when I began working in theatre. Yeah. And then, so, you know, after you graduate, you go into theatre or marketing and, mm. and PR and, and publicist, uh, being a publicist in the theatre world. And how long did you stay in that world? And then what was the transition from there to, um, to the advertising world? Sure. So, um, so I spent... Um, uh, in total, I think about three or four years. Mm. Um, I worked at a couple of theatres in the UK. Then I got completely fed up mm. with working 24-7 and earning nothing. Because that's theatre. You I know, see. you work because you love it. You work yeah. all the time and you are earning chicken feed. Wow. 
And so I was beginning to get disillusioned. And around this time, um, uh, part of my job um, promoting the theatre was giving talks about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women in Liverpool. And afterwards, one of them came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. And I thought, that is the universe telling me something. Yes. Time to sell out, go into advertising. And so I did. Wow. So this was like when you were about 25 Yeah, this is in 1985. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And then your first job in advertising, how did you, how, what was your foot in? Right. Now, um, now, it was extremely difficult to break into advertising because in, in 1985, advertising was one of the hottest industries in, in the UK, you know, and, and generally, but by the way, here in the US as well. Um, you know, things are a bit different now. Um, so what, 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 what I did was, so, you know, first of all, I applied for jobs, you know, um, saying I've got all this experience, you know, very translatable marketing and theater, marketing. You know, and, you know, fell into that double bind where, you know, it was people wouldn't give me a job because I didn't have any advertising experience, but I couldn't get advertising experience unless I got a job. Yeah. You know? So then I basically went back to ground zero and I applied for um, the post-university graduate training schemes. So um, I'm not sure how much um, agencies in the UK do, do this um, these days, but you know, back in the day, um, you, you went on this thing called the milk round, which was where um, Oxford and Cambridge and every other university basically sent students to, you know, advertising agencies said, we will take this many entry level graduate trainees and we have a whole training program, mm. um, very, very lengthy and intensive in those days, you know, and, and then you get to work in our agency. So I, um, so I basically um, was applying for those entry level schemes, you know, three or four years late because everybody else was fresh out of university. So I took the first job I was offered um, on a graduate training scheme, which was the agency Ted Bates, mm -hmm. back in the day when it existed, it mm -hmm. no longer does. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I absolutely loved it. Um, first of all, um, the, the, the good thing about those days is you literally, as a graduate trainee, you spent six months working in every single department in the agency. Mm. You know, the, um, the, the, um, the, the, I went into account management, but they moved you around, you know, um, production, traffic, you know, the creative department. Um, and so you really got a very holistic education um, on absolutely everything that goes into, into doing, doing what we do. And then um, at the other end of that, you know, I came out as a, you know, baby account exec, mm. you know, and then and then began, you know, climbing the ladder in, in account management. Yeah. What do you uh, what's the most uh, important thing that you learned in that six month training program? Precisely because my background is account management. That was what I was being trained in. You know, I absolutely saw how integral account management's role is to um, making sure that creativity flourishes and creativity gets bought. You know, because again, you know, we are talking London in the 80s, this is old school advertising training. You know, this is, you sell the work, you don't come back to the agency, okay? And so I absolutely saw the power of building relationships with clients that meant that you created a climate of receptivity to be able to sell the best creative work. And I also saw how much account management needed to basically, you know, make everything work together to get the desired outcome in the desired timeline, you know, presented to the client in, in the desired way. And mm. so, 
you know, really, um, that gave me a huge respect for the role of account management. And I have defended it ever since, mm. you know, to the wrong-headed people who think it's dispensable within our business because it really is not. So for, uh, for the listeners who might not be familiar with the advertising mm. initiative, could you explain a little bit about, mm. you know, what is account management? Yep. So, um, so account management, you know, it's called account management, it's called account handling, um, but essentially um, you are the interface between the client and the rest of the agency. And so it is your job to build um, a really strong working relationship with the client. You, you are their partner. You know, you are shoulder to shoulder with them in helping them achieve the business results they're looking for from the work the agency does for them. Um, but you are absolutely about, you know, getting the client to trust you, getting the client to have faith in what the agency is doing for them. Um, really, you know, um, working with them to uncover consumer insights and then feed into, you know, the strongest possible strategies and creative briefs. And really building a relationship where their level of trust is such that they absolutely believe in what the agency recommends um, and make the leap of faith that we always require clients to do when we are presenting a creative idea that they have to buy into and believe that we can execute in, in, in the way that we say we will. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, you said it was uh, 1989 that you went to BBH and mm. you, you, spe you spent a long time mm. at BBH, you know, all mm. the way to being the, the chairperson uh, when you opened BBH mm. in the US. So you touched upon this a little bit as an account person, account, you know, being in the account management team, you, your role was to foster creativity and make sure mm. that the creativity flourishes. So tell us a little bit about um, what you learned along the way mm. and what you did mm. uh, in order to make sure that the team was as creative as it can be. Sure, and, and actually, Ray, I, I want for the benefit of our listeners, I want to tell our audience how I end up in New York, because mm. this is something, mm. I know we're gonna come on to talk about um, how um, Japanese people can pursue creativity in the way that they want to. And I just think it's useful to hear yeah. some of my stories in this way. So, you know, there I was, at BBH, in London, in the 90, early 90s, you know, young, thrustingly ambitious account director, and so I did what you do when you are a young, thrusting, ambitious account director. I pinned Nigel Bogle up against the wall and I said to him, where am I going in this agency? Okay. And so Nigel did, did a classic management technique, a very good one, of he turned the question back on me. And he said, well, Cindy, you know, you tell us what you want to be in this agency and we'll make it happen. And he said, and don't be bounded by the realms of the possible. If you want a job that doesn't yet exist in this agency, tell us. So I thought, okay, great offer, you know. I went away, I thought about it. So I came back and bear in mind that this is when BBH only had one office in London. Oh, yeah. So I said to Nigel Bogle, my dream job is running BBH North America. And to be my total dream job, I said, you know, I'd be okay doing it in San Francisco. And the reason I said that was because we had the Levi's business, as you right. know, and, right. and, and Levi's is headquartered in San Francisco. But I said, but to be my total dream job, I would do it in New York. So Nigel said, okay, that's interesting because actually we've just begun talking about the US. So your request is locked. Now, now, now what then happened was um, there was a lot more pressure for BBH to open up in Asia Pacific first mm. because we had clients there who obviously were a very long way away. 
and wanted a presence in the region. So I went out to Singapore in 1996 as the number two to Simon Sherwood to help start and run BBH Asia Pacific. In, in uh, Singapore. Uh, in Singapore, Singapore yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Nigel said, this will be great experience for you when you then, you know, go on to open up the US office. And so I did that for two years. Then in 1998, I got my dream job, which was starting up BBH New York. And so I moved here in September 98, and BBH US literally began as me in a room with a phone, starting an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace, Madison Avenue, as you know. Um, my employee number two was my executive creative director, Ty Montague. And, and, and so to answer your question, Ray, about how I fostered a culture of cloud creativity. So first of all, you know, that first fall, you know, I think December 1998, our Christmas our holiday party was six people, you know, round a table in a restaurant. But, you know, from, from day one, I said to my team, our vision is that we are going to be the best agents in America. And I said to them, now, you know, if the guys at J. Walter Thompson, Y&R McCann Erickson could hear us say that, they'd be rolling around on the ground hysterics laughing. Okay. I said, but, but, but here's the thing, you know, when we decide that we are going to be the best agents in America, that means that we then measure everything we do by, does this take us one step closer to being the best agents in America? Mm. And that's how you ensure a culture of excellence, because you are measuring yourself against that standard, mm. even when you are half a dozen people in one room in the Tribeca Film Center trying to win business. Okay. So, so, you know, I would say, you know, first of all, absolutely set your creative vision of what you want to be and then measure yourself by that standard, even if it seems very, very far away. Then the second thing I would say is, honestly, you know, the single best thing you can do to foster creativity is to create a happy working environment. Create a culture where everybody feels enormously happy working for there, because then creativity will absolutely flourish. Mm. Creativity cannot flourish when you are enormously stressed, when you are working in a climate of fear, you know, when you are under tremendous pressure. Um, some years ago, um, an agency hired me to consult with them, and they said to me, Cindy, how can we be more creative? And, you know, I'm a big fan of radical simplicity. I like to keep things very simple. I said, it's very simple, have less meetings. Nobody can be creative when your calendar is full of back-to-back -back meetings every single day. Literally, I mean, you know, at, at ground zero, if you want to do one thing to be more, start being more creative instantly, have less meetings. Give people time to breathe, to think, to let their minds roam. Mm. But, you know, people do that best in a really, really happy working environment. Mm. And, you know, I pride myself that, you know, that is what we created at BBH New York in the, in the early years. And, and you know, um, and honestly, I say that because, you know, feel free to ask anybody who worked there. And I think that they tell you that. You know, to, um, to, uh, when I interviewed potential new recruits at BBH um, in, in those early years, um, you know, to, um, uh, um, I would say to them, you know, if, um, if in, the interviews went well and I really wanted them to come work with us, I'd give them the phone list 
And I'd say feel free to ring any person on this list and ask them what it's like working here. Because I was very confident that yeah. what they would hear would be good. I, I want to press on that a little mm. bit um, because I came to New York around the same time, mm. I think in 97, mm. 97, 98, 98, mm. yeah. And uh, when I got into the industry, in, you know, I started as a designer and uh, the work-life balance wasn't quite what it is now. Just socially and professionally, mm. and especially in New mm. York, mm. and especially if you were in, mm. in your 20s, mm. you were somewhat expected to work hard or work long mm. hours, mm. I should say. And mm. I, I did pull a lot of mm. all-nighters, right? Mm. So that's number one. Number mm. two, the advertising and creative industry is a very competitive one. You know, you're pitching against other mm. rival agencies. Mm. So you stay long hours. Mm. And when you work, not just hard, but when you work long hours, it's difficult to maintain happiness. Yeah, so how did you, how did you do that? Right. Especially in the late 90s, right. early 2000s when, and in, mm. you know, in New York, which is one of the toughest markets, and especially mm. um, in advertising, mm. how do you sort of balance that happiness versus uh, uh, hard work? Sure, so, um, so several things. Mm. Um, f um, first of all, um, it, and, um, and this is kind of um, inevitably um, a result of being a startup agency. Mm. We had a very young staff. Um, we had a very young staff because we couldn't afford to pay wacky great <laughs> salaries. You know? and, 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 and by the way, I, I did also, obviously I was interviewing senior people. You know, I remember talking to a number of senior people in the industry back in the day. Um, you know, not everyone was prepared to t take a chance with a startup agency. You know, nobody knew, you know, BBH coming to the American market, nobody knew how it was gonna go, you know, and, and so I also I remember, you know, senior people, you know, turning, turning me down. Um, but what that meant was that we, we had a lot of, you know, young staffers who did not have, um, you know, um, who weren't married, who didn't have babies, um, you know, and, and, and children. So A, um, they um, didn't, didn't have the pull of family time in the same way. But B also, you know, um, we were all, um, the, you know, those early years are wonderful. We all had a very clear vision of what we wanted to achieve. We were working, and I think this is, this is very important to say, to say as well, because this is absolutely the BBH culture that, that was imported. We were working um, in a culture of utter integrity and principles, as in, you know, we only wanted clients who, who wanted what we did. You know, um, you know, in credentials meetings in, in those days, the first thing I would do was play our reel, because obviously this is back in the day when, yeah. you know, I had a reel, you know. And, you know, if I saw a sharp intake of breath at any of the ads on it, mm. I knew this, this is not our kind of client. And I did that deliberately. I did that as a kind of filter. I'm going to put Shah work right up front. And if you go, oh, you know, then, then, then we, may, we may not be the best agency for you. You know, what, what that meant was that everyone really believed in the vision. Everybody loved the agency brand, the culture. And so um, everybody really enjoyed working those long hours. And, you know, I made sure that we had, you know, um, agency nights out together. You know, um, we, we, we had a day out every year where, you know, um, we did things like we went out on a boat on the river, you know, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we had an agency softball team. We joined the agency softball league, all of that. And so, and so actually, um, people were, were, were very happy. There was no concern within our ranks about work-life balance in that context. By the way, possibly helped by the fact that this is also an inevitable product of a you know, very young agency. 
okay, um, there were a number of affairs and, and relationships. <laughs> but, 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 but I hasten to add, I mean, first of all, bear in mind, um, you had a female CEO. So, so um, the, all of this was entirely consensual, yeah. you know, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And secondly, I'm happy to report that a number of them ended up in, as marriages. <laughs> I mean, as very long, you know, um, to, there are a number of agency marriages that came out of those early years that, that are, that are rock solid marriages yeah, yeah, you know yeah. to, um, to, to today um so you know we we all were, were working really hard but i did my best to make sure that it was in an environment that made it tremendous fun we weren't pushing anybody beyond limits and um, and also ray because um you know, I think um, I am quite unique on a number of fronts in terms of my approach to leadership. So, for example, you know, um, when we were pitching, so, you know, I, I, um, I absolutely believe um, um, the most fundamental requirement for a good um, corporate culture, good agency culture is trust. Okay. When you believe in people, they will rise to that belief. So, you know, we would pitch and I would put, you know, somebody in charge and, you know, um, you know one of my senior account directors would be running it and whatever. So, so you know, um, and I'd be involved along the way in various meetings. Um, but, but basically, you know, um, I would be shown the full pitch presentation, you know, um, say a couple of days before we were due to go and, go and make it. So, <clears throat> um, the team would take me through the pitch presentation. And, you know, my, my job in that scenario was absolutely to make sure the pitch was the best it could possibly be, you know. So I would have some views on things that I wanted to change about whatever was in the presentation. But before I expressed those, you know, my question to myself was, if I ask for all these changes to be made, how much human pain and suffering is that going to cause? And as far as I was concerned, if any change I requested meant the studio was going to be up all night doing it, my team were going to be running around without sleep when I needed them fresh for the pitch, my first question to myself was, how much human pain and suffering are these changes going to cause? Because if, it, um, if it's insupportable, I'm going to live with you know, what we have. I mean, obviously, I'm going to make sure it's the best it can be. But there is a limit to how much you slash and burn when you are going to devastate your team. You know, so, so, so that's part of what I mean when I say, although we were all working really hard, I was really trying to make sure that, 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 that it was in an environment where everybody felt highly motivated and, and very happy because we were all working towards a common goal, which was to make BBH America the best agency in America. Mm-hmm. What was the first uh, turning point for BBH in the, in the US? As, as the, the CEO, mm. as a female CEO. <clears throat> yep. A um, really big turning point um, was in 2002 when Levi's moved their entire US business into us without a pitch. And, and, and by the way, you know, what was funny was I know that, you know, when that happened, everybody thought that I'd been working behind the scenes and, you know, and I really hadn't. I mean, but obviously Levi's had a great relationship with BBH because of the European work. You know, I had met Robert Hansen, um, you know, uh, the president of, of Levi's. Um, we had a good, you know, sort of getting to know each other relationship. Um, but, but really it was because in 2002, their business was not doing well. And, you know, um, and, and Robert decided it was time to make a major move. And he moved the business out of FCB and into BBH. And he said to me, and Cindy, failure is not an option. <laughs> no pressure. 
Um, but, but obviously that, that, I mean, that doubled the size of the agency because I had to hire, you know, to service a business that, that large. Um, so so that, that was terrific. And, and then that same year, um, we were awarded um, Adweek's Eastern Agency of the Year. Um, and that was only four years after we'd started. And I think that was the quickest that any agency had you know, started and then gotten you know, um, an award um, of that significance. And, and so that was, um, that, that was a really great moment. Um, I'm going to um, turn back to the role of account management a little bit. And um, having worked in the, the agency business for, for quite a while as well myself, um, I've seen a relationship between an account director uh, and a creative director that didn't quite um, work out because the creative director would be a little bit territorial in terms of usually his mm. <laughs> his mm. creative territory and the creative direction and creative decisions that they wanted to make. And from my experience, the best account people that I've worked with have also been good creatives themselves. Yeah, so, you know, creatives have egos. How, how did you manage mm. those egos? Mm. Well, so, well so, so here's an interesting thing, Ray, because to your point, um, you know, within the culture of BBH, it's very different. Mm. You know, I grew up in account management um, in the UK um, and within BBH, where account management is expected to sell the work, you know. And, and, and I am very, very good mm -hmm. at selling, mm -hmm. and I'm very good at selling creative work. Uh, to your point, culture in the US, I think that has been the case in other agencies. Within BBH, our culture was absolutely about, you know, the creatives always knew that we were on the same side, we we're on the same page, and that account management was out to sell their work the hardest they possibly could. Wow, wow. All right, so uh, moving forward, mm. um, why did you leave BBH? So, um, I, back in 2005, mm. I turned 45, mm. and I had my very own personal midlife crisis. In the sense that <clears throat> I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. Obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. But in a couple of years running up to it, I'd always gone, on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wonderful agency, love BBH to death. I cannot say enough nice things about them. But I went, maybe it's time to do something else. You know, and I worked for them in London, worked for them in Asia, you know, opened up the agency in the US. And, you know, the problem then became, I hadn't the faintest idea what, because I'd said to people for years, I'm not going to work in advertising forever, I'm not going to work BBH forever, but advertising is a really great industry to work in to identify what you want to do next. Because as you know, Ray, we come into contact with so many different mm -hmm. industries, mm -hmm. so many different companies, people, and I guess I'd always thought that one day my next big thing would bubble up from the ether. Mm. There I was at the age of 45, and it hadn't. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay guys, here I am, what do you got? And see what comes. 
So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And honestly, it was the best thing I, I ever did in my life. Mm -hmm. Because, and I suspect you empathize, I am now evangelical about working for yourself. Mm. You know, too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, yeah. industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you have mm. enough experience to have confidence now, but you know, when you were 22, when you were 25, 28, I'm sure, you know, how, what did you do to overcome, like, how did you manage fear? Um, um, honestly, um, back in the day, I just worked really hard. Mm. You know, I mean, that was, that was what I did. That was what you did, mm. you know. Um, but it, it, what I would say is that, that this is also, again, where the culture of BBH came into play. Because when people would ask me, Cindy, you know, you've spent 16 years at this agency. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it that keeps you here? You know, is it the brilliant creative work, great strategic thinking, fantastic people? And, you know, all of those contributed. But fundamentally, I spent 16 years at BBH because BBH has more integrity and principles than any other place I've ever worked at. And that matters more to me than anything about where I work. I knew that if a client called the agency leadership complaining about me, they'd be on my side first. And so, you know, um, fear is very different when you don't have to feel fear about that. So it's the integrity of the organization that had your back. Yep. And, and, and you know, in a way, um, this is an overall truth, Ray, because I would say, in my case, when, when you very kindly call me fearless, it's not about the absence of fear, it's about the presence of values. You know, I believe that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. And this is why I encourage everybody, if they've never done this exercise, to take a long, hard look inside themselves and to ask themselves, what do I believe in? What do I value? What do I stand for? What am I all about? Because when you know that, that makes life so much simpler. Life still throws you all the shit it always will, but you know exactly how to respond to in any given situation in a way that is true to you. And by the way, that is the secret of happiness. You know, and so I am always, and I've always been living and working my values. And when you know that you are doing the right thing, you don't feel fear. The first key takeaway that I had from her experience and what she talked about is verbalize what you want. In the case of Cindy, she must have felt some kind of frustration to feel, oh, where am I going? So she just took the step of talking to her boss what she wanted. And she actually didn't know first. Credit to her boss who asked her, well, Cindy, you know, what do you want to do and where do you want to go? She went away and she thought about wanting to become the founder and the CEO of BBH in New York or in the US. They actually didn't have a presence at the time. Uh, BBH was already a very successful uh, agency in the UK. 
her boss then, before giving her that opportunity, sent her to Singapore to start BBH in Singapore with another person so that she can learn from that experience. And then a few years later, she asked to go to New York to start the US presence of BBH. So the crucial step that she took and my first key takeaway from my conversation with Cindy is verbalize what you want by saying what you want, by putting into words what you think you want actually helps you realize what it is that you want and make that happen. But the difference that I noticed, you know, I'm in the, the position to manage people, I'm in the position to manage a company. And in the last 10, 15 years, I've had many people come and go from the companies that I've been part of. But I would say four out of five people who have left the team and the company that I was managing or that I was a senior member of, we never had the chance to talk about why they wanted to leave. Uh, by the time that we had that conversation, uh, it was too late. You know, they, were, they had become unhappy in the work environment that we were working in. And they had come to the conclusion of leaving that workplace to find a quote unquote better thing. My second key takeaway from Cindy is the exact phrase that she said, which is make sure creativity flourishes and make sure creativity gets bought. This made me realize that in a creative environment, it's not just about making creative things, but it's about making sure that creativity flourishes in that environment. And it's not good enough to just come up with creative ideas, but you have to make sure that creativity gets bought. So an account person is the person who is the interface between the client and the agency. And she's not necessarily, she wasn't necessarily the one to be making things, but what struck me from what Cindy was saying, she has such pride in what she did as an account manager at the agency that she was working for at the time. And that's such a, a crucial role in the world of creativity. So key takeaway number two, make sure creativity flourishes and make sure creativity gets bought. And then number three, my key takeaway number three is happiness is what you manage. Happiness is what you manage. In this episode, she talked about when she was leading that company and she would be leading a pitch to get a new piece of business. And the impression she made on me about the way she managed her team was that she led with empathy. And what I mean by that was that empathy is about understanding what other people are feeling. And in the context of a professional creative industry, which is highly charged with emotions, just because, you know, uh, people who are making things, you know, people who are creative tend to be quite passionate about what they do. And they put a lot of passion into uh, what they do. So they get um, emotional. But as a person who was managed that, managing that environment, she always applied empathy 
to the way she managed that team so that she was always conscious of how they felt and how they may feel based on what she would make them do. She mentioned that whenever she would review the work, before she said something, she would think about, okay, if I say this, or if I give this feedback and the presentation is in 24 hours or 48 hours, what would they have to go through in order to get to that point, what I'm trying to get to? And if it would require her team to put an all-nighter to get to that point, she wouldn't say it. And not only did she manage her own happiness, but she was always consciously managing the happiness of the she was managing. So happiness is what you manage. So just to summarize the three key takeaways, number one, verbalize what you want. Number two, make sure creativity flourishes and make sure creativity gets bought. And number three, happiness is what you manage. So those were the three key takeaways from my conversation with Cindy Gallup, the founder and the CEO of Make Love Not Porn. If you apply these three principles to what you do, I think they will definitely help your career and they will definitely help you get what you want in your career. Next time, we will continue this conversation where she talks about the second chapter of her career, Make Love Not Porn. This one is less about how she built a career, but more about how she built a company or how she is building a company and the insights that she shares from being an entrepreneur. So stay tuned. I am your host, Ray Namoto, and this is A Creative Mindset. So see you next time.